Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello and welcome to so... Wait. <clears throat> you got this, boo. Hello and welcome to so many white guys from WNYC Studios. Wait, Phoebe, I feel weird about this. I don't want to do this. Joni, come on, just do this. This will be like super cute and fun. I just don't feel like talking today. Okay, okay, let me try again. Me, 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 me. I'm your host with the mostest, Phoebe Robinson, and boy, are my arms tired. <clears throat> I flew all the way from LA. We've got a fresh new show for you today. What have I ever said that we got a fresh new show for you today? <laughs> This won't work at all. Okay, you know what? Give me a second. Let's trade places. Okay, okay. This was a hot ass meal. So many white guys. So many. So many white guys. So white. Joanna, you know what? You tried. You did a great job. I'm just tie tie today. That's okay. I'm tie tie too. And also, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a producer, baby. I belong behind behind the mic. Mm-hmm. Phoebe's question for you. Question. Tell me what you think about it. Yeah. Did you have a best friend growing up? No. Really? Just kidding. <laughs> That would have been so sad. I know. There's just like literally radio silence. People keep thinking there's something wrong with the podcast, but it's just that you have nothing to say. I would say my high school, my best friend was Crystal Bradley, Mm -hmm. who's adorable. She's pregnant now. So congrats, Crystal. Uh, But yeah, we were like two peas in a pod, like always just hanging out. And like we went to a predominantly white high school. And so it was nice to like have a little partner in crime. And like I remember we did like a sleepover because my parents were very strict and like they didn't let me go to sleepovers until like my senior year. Wait, are you serious? Yeah, I'm for real. Octavia and Philip were like, we all know those parents. We all know what they're going to be doing over there. And I was like, true. They loved you a lot. Yeah, they loved me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cute. What about you? Um, I mean, my friend Nicole, shout out. Hey, girl. We went to preschool together, so I've known her since I was two. Wait, you guys are still BFFs? Mm-hmm. Whoa. She's great. So, like, I'm an only child, and she's an only child. And so mm. we just formed this, like, super intense sisterly connection, but we were also both total weirdos. So, cute. like... We would do, like, prank calls all the time. We would, like, lean out of my mom's car window and just yell hi at every single person (laughs) that walked by. We would, like, shake up bottles of Dr. Pepper and put the foam in our mouth and then wait for a car to drive by and, like, spit the foam out of the cars (laughs) and yell rabies. Oh, my God, Joni Mitch! We were, like, really crazy. That's cute. We got, like, totally obsessed with the Michael Jackson trials, and, like, I don't know why my parents let us watch it. Well, because it was very fascinating. Yeah, and same with O.J. Simpson. I, like, watched all of it, and I'm like, 
age appropriate yeah I, I remember a little bit vaguely the oj simpson i remember a little bit the whole like bill clinton like when he was like i did not have sexual relations with that woman like i remember watching that in real time i remember being really stumped about that cigar people were like there's this whole cigar business and i was like yeah sometimes you smoke cigars when you want to celebrate a baby being born <laughs> <laughs> And then when I turned like 19, I was like, oh, that's what he do with that cigar. That's kind of tight. You're into it. Light it up, baby. Oh, my God. Puff, puff, pass. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) That's insane. Uh, C-U-E. Joni Mitch. Let's move on to our next segment, huh? Okay, what's our next segment, Mom? Oh, just a little something called Across the Aisle. Ooh! Across the Aisle. Across the Aisle. That sweater looks great on you. Hey, this is Lana Glazer, executive producer of So Many White Guys, and I am here to reach across the aisle with my girl, Phoebe. Rata, rata, rata. We're going to see what we can agree on with people who maybe don't have the same political values as we do. For this week, I want to say the common thing that every red-blooded American loves in this goddamn country, buying shit on sale. Yes, everybody loves it. Oh my God. Even though we all know that everything is overpriced anyway, mm-hmm. it's that red ink, baby. That red ink makes me feel like I just made money. And then whenever someone's like, oh, I like that dress, you're always like, I got it on sale. Right, totally a conversation starter. Ooh. Also, it's like humbling, you yeah. know? It's like, don't feel threatened. I got this on sale. I'm yeah. human too. Yeah, I don't pay full price. Get out of here. I can't afford it. So, you know what, guys? Let's all go out. Let's walk into a store and then just walk to that sales rack and then just talk to the other people that are at that sales rack about the good deals you're getting. And don't be like, who'd you vote for? Yeah. Just be like, no matter who we each voted for, isn't this awesome? Mm -hmm. Just do it, guys. Enjoy. Godspeed. Did you have Mervyn's California? The fuck is Mervin's? That was the department store in Minneapolis. No, we had Dillard's, J.C. Penney's, Sears. Great sales. So many sales. So many sales. Talbots. Oh, we should start a new show called So Many Sales. And you just talked about sales that are happening. But what if we just like talked about sales like S-A-I-L-S? Be like, I've seen a boat once. <laughs> Manchester by the sea. (laughs) My Boston accent just really gets worse by the second. That's amazing. I'm totally into that. Manchester. That was that wasn't bad. Manchester. Yeah. Keep going. Manchester. I just want to fuck one Bostonian dude once. I just want to hear him say like I'm coming, but like a Boston accent. I will like laugh. I don't know if a Boston accent would come out of that. Oh well, then he better force it. All right, sorry. Hey, babies! Welcome back from the commercial break. Ooh, I love saying that. All right, so here's the deal, boo-boos. If you're here and you're listening to this, then you probably know that today's guest is 
the one, the only, Melissa Harris Perry. I mean, do you download the episode, right? I mean, right? I mean, they might not know. Like, you know, sometimes people don't go and read the iTunes show description. Well, if you don't know, now you know. And word, say with me, Joanna. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. <laughs> Biggie says N is on. Oh. But he says, like, the actual N word. Oh. If you don't know, now you know. Anyway. Anyway, <laughs> Melissa Harris Perry, okay? This woman hardly needs an introduction, but I'll give you a little tiny taste. So, Melissa is currently an editor at L.com, a former MSNBC host, the author of two books on the Black experience, and a professor at Wake Forest University, where she teaches a class called Girl Stories, Race, Politics, and Pedagogy. Should we get to the interview? Okay, all right, let's get to this interview, baby. Thank you so much for being on So Many White Guys. Yes! This is very exciting. I'm a big fan of yours. I met you months ago at um, the L event for Marley Mag. Marley! So I got to do this event with you guys, and you were so sweet and so nice, and we exchanged, like, emails, and I was like, this is really cool. Uh, <laughs> so that I emailed you and actually do the show. And there's so much I want to talk to you about, but the first thing I want to talk to you about is so you went to Duke University. And uh, you majored in poli-sci? Yeah, so I got my PhD at Duke. I um, did my undergrad at Wake Forest. Yes. Got the degree in English as a college student and then um, went on and got the PhD from Duke. Yes. And your college advisor at some point was Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. That's cray-cray banane. Like, (laughs) what? Like, what is that? What was she like? Mm. How did this happen? What was her style? Oh man, we. I mean, and and then an hour later, you can ask question number two. Yeah, right. because, <laughs> um, so Maya Angelou taught at Wake Forest um, when I was there as an undergraduate student, and you know I teach there now as a professor that carries her name. So my professorship is the Maya Angelou Presidential professorship, which is... No pressure. <laughs> yeah, right? It's kind of uh, every once in a while when I'm sending one of my appalling emails, I realize that her name is on the bottom. <laughs> and I'm like, oops. <laughs> um, but she was kind of everything in that she was generous and brilliant and courageous, but also so very real. You know, she would have us as students to her home. Uh, and when she did, she always cooked for us um, because she loved food. But, you know, she also believed in making it herself. She often taught around her own uh, table. She was a very hard teacher. Um, mm-hmm. She really assigned a lot of reading. But, you know, I like to say that, you know, part of how I met her was I was taking her class. And then, you know, because you're stupid when you're 17, 18 years old, uh, I was pledging my sorority, got bronchitis, took um, a medication that I had an allergic reaction to, <sighs> lost my whole semester and had to drop all my classes, including Maya Angelou's class. Oh. So my little 17 year old self strode up to Maya Angelou and was like, hey, yo, I won't have to drop your class. And, you know, the appropriate response to that is, get out of my face, girl. Right. But what she said to me was, wait a minute, aren't you a scholarship student? How are you going to continue to progress if you drop all your classes? And 
Of course, I cried and said, I have no idea. And her response to that was, well, why don't you come work for me this summer? I'll pay your tuition this summer to take classes to catch up, um, and you can work it off by being my student assistant. And that was the summer of the uh, 92 presidential election when Bill Clinton won. And then that January, she gave the inaugural poem, and I was answering her fan mail after she gave on the Pulse of Morning, and I had a chance to see what happens when a black woman addresses the nation and how she helped to change the world. And it was was really, it changed my life. It was an extraordinary experience. That could be a movie. Like my summer, like seriously, like my summer with Maya. And it's just like, that's fucking amazing. A whole summer? Oh, no, no. I mean, my, no, 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 not, not like for the rest of my college, for for two years. That is amazing. Yeah, it was great. Wow. Okay. So what do you think was like um, the biggest lesson you learned from your time with her? Yeah, I think I'd have to say two. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is courage is the most important virtue um, because without courage, you can't practice any of the other virtues consistently. Um, so she says, you know, you can be anything, you can be good at anything, but you can't be that thing consistently unless you're courageous. And the other is um, I am human and therefore nothing human can be alien to me. And this mm-hmm. one is both tough um, but very powerful. So... Um, you have to remember, of course, Maya Angelou um, was a survivor of childhood rape. Mm-hmm. And so when she says, I am human and therefore nothing human can be alien to me, she would encourage us as students. She'd say, when someone does something horrible, you are not allowed to say that that person is a monster. So I think about, for example, Dylan Roof. Mm. You're not allowed to say Dylan Roof is a monster. You have to acknowledge that he's human. And anything a human can do, you can do. So... You have to acknowledge that the horror that Dylan Roof did in Charleston, South Carolina, you have that in you. The only reason you don't do it is because you nurture a different intention. Mm. But you're not actually different. You just nurture a different intention. And it's, it's important that you acknowledge that because otherwise, if you lose sight of that, you could turn into that. It's also true with anything that's good. Any. Yeah wonderful, beautiful, brilliant, fabulous thing that any human has done, you are capable of. I mean, it doesn't mean you can, like, be Michael Jordan or, like, you know, but you're capable of greatness or of horror Mm. because you're human. I take it very seriously in in my own work and in my own teaching, Mm -hmm. and I try, even though I'm a highly judgmental and snarky person, Mm -hmm. to pause, come back, and try to remember that. Yeah, it's hard to do that, I think, given this political climate that we live in, to see the humanity in some people who are actively trying to prevent people from living their best lives, their most full lives, even like being in this country. So how do you reconcile that with like what's going on right now? You know, I had a really incredible 2016 relative to politics. I got to spend 2016 with these 30 students um, traveling from Iowa to the inauguration, and they were Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. And we went to every single event um, and worked for every single candidate and saw the whole thing very, very, very up close. And I had always known that Hillary was going to lose the election. Um, Really? What makes you say that? um, The shortest version of this answer that I can give that will make sense is 
simply that there are a number of indicators that as an empirical political scientist, I could look at and say, everything tells me that this candidate is an extraordinarily weak candidate. And nothing that was going on in 2016 in her campaign seemed to address the most central weaknesses that Mm. I could see that existed as far back as 2004. Oh, wow. Okay. And we knew that they existed in 2008 because she lost in a primary in 2008 to a candidate who I like to say was named Osama bin Laden and had been on the school board in Chicago the year before. (laughs) (laughs) Now... When America elects yeah. a black guy named Osama bin Laden <laughs> instead of you, and then eight years later you old and a woman, I mean, like I don't yeah. like. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being light, but like America don't like women, right? Maybe y'all had noticed that this year. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've known for a long time, but I think for a while people were because I think a lot of people were shocked at like, especially how many white women voted for Trump, and I was like, I'm not. No one likes women. Let's let's be clear. Mm-hmm. People mad at the white ladies for voting for the Trump. But I want I want to just white women have not voted in a majority for the Democrats since the 1960s. Mm. Why would anyone be surprised? Like I'm sorry, is someone unconscious now? Yeah. Ordinary folks wandering around paying their bills, taking their kids to school. Cool. You don't know. I, I ain't mad at you. That's fine. That's your business. I don't expect you to know. But the hell with the Democratic Party don't know. Is there a reason why professionals working for the Democratic Party were unaware that white women have not voted for the Democrat since the 1960s? Is someone there incapable of running a crosstab that would show you that white women have not? Like, yeah, this is your actual job. I can't, I mean, talking to you right now, I'm like, I think you should be a political advisor. I think you should like run. Nah, a, no. Here's you know what, what I mean? saw. What I saw mm-hmm. was that the Democratic Party decided to take their party back. Everybody was over here worried about the Republicans being racist. And what I saw was that whiteness stood its ground in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. What I saw, and I might be wrong because I am often wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm wrong a lot. My 15-year-old points this out to me pretty often. (laughs) But what I saw happen Mm -hmm. was a party that relies on black and brown voters Mm -hmm. make a decision to exclusively run one candidate. And then, you know, Bernie Sanders, who's not a Democrat, chose to run from the outside. But even then... A party whose entire base, and even its fringes, really is black, brown, and young people, mm-hmm. had a primary between two old white people. I saw whiteness standing its ground in a party so determined to once again say, oh, no, we're the real America. We're white. We're white working class. That, that even when it lost its ass to a reality TV star for mm-hmm. having done it, the next morning woke up and said, oh, man, we better go back and get those white guys. That their inability, incapacity, and unwillingness to see the leadership in black and brown and young folks is its own undoing. I said, boy, bye to the Democratic Party. I unsubscribed from their little... <laughs> 
email list. I went and registered my damn self as an independent. Yes, I've been independent for like 10 years. Cause I, yes. Because yeah, I, yeah. ca- I just cannot. So they want to be white. They're going to just have to white that on up right over there. <laughs> I, I cannot. Okay, so I want to go back because you mentioned yes. MSNBC and mm-hmm. you had your own show on there for four years. Yep. Do you want to kind of refresh listeners' memory as to, to why you decided to leave the show? Because I thought it was a very brave move. Yes. So I wrote a letter to my staff mm-hmm. um, because I had not been invited to host my own show for weeks. Um, I wrote a letter to my staff explaining why, after having not been invited to host my own show for weeks, when I finally was invited to host the hours when my show appeared, I was not accepting the invitation. Mm -hmm. It was because it was not going to be my show. It was just going to be the hours of my show. The letter that I wrote to my staff was leaked Mm -hmm. to the New York Times, but only a portion of the letter. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the portion that was leaked um, was racially inflammatory, I then leaked the entire letter to a friend and former producer, and he put it on Medium. After that, NBC made the decision to fire me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't make the decision to leave my show. Yeah. They made a decision to fire me. So when we got to the bargaining table at the end of that whole process, there's kind of a, a conversation that you have where, um, uh, you know, what they do is, is they hold the rest of your contract over your head and they're like, well, you can either take the rest of your contract in money and if you take it, then you can never talk about any of this or we'll keep... Uh, your money. And if you ever talk about any of this, you know, that's fine, but you'll never have any of this money. And so I said, keep your damn money. And it liberated me to be able to talk about it. Wow, that's amazing. Um, So you're you're at Wake Forest and you're teaching a class right now. What's the name of it again? So the class I'm teaching right now, I'm co-teaching with my uh, colleague, Dr. Danny Parker, and it's a class on girls' stories. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're looking at girls of color and the ways that their storytelling is both pedagogical and politics. So when you created this class, was this always the intention, like when you decided to go back and do this sort of program there, where you, like your mission was to highlight voices for women and people of color? Or did it just kind of like, you just wake up in the middle of the night like, oh, <laughs> this is what I should be doing? Well, so, you know, I, I never left the academy. Um, it, TV was always the best side hustle mm-hmm. ever. Um, it was a well-paid side hustle. Um, yeah. it, was, um, it was a little exhausting because I was working seven days a week for a while and flying back and forth like uh, Tom Joyner. But I was always a college professor. So there was never like a going back. Mm-hmm. Um, and my work has always been on race and politics, but has become increasingly about girls and women. Maybe in part it's because my oldest daughter, like the more I watch her, become a young woman, like, the more invested I am in, in <laughs> like, she won't talk to me, so maybe I'm like, talk to, <laughs> talk to other uh, young women. Um, but I think also just for me, theoretically, it's been, like, I always caught and understood and had a lot to say about my blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I was surprised at how long it took me and how long it took other people to think it was important for me to have something to say about the intersection of my race and gender. Mm. And I still find that to be so true. Like, I'll tell the story real fast. Um, when I went to see Hidden Figures, I was so pissed with my uncle, who spent a lot of years as the head of aeronautical engineering at MIT mm-hmm. and worked at, you know, at NASA. 
And I called him and I was like, Uncle Wes, do you know the story of these women? And he was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, hey, sir, <laughs> you know, like you have two daughters, you know, um, he's my dad's twin brother. There are, there are, you know, are four girls in our family. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, y'all spent, my dad and, and his twin brother are real, like, radical black, right? Yeah. And I was like, you know, y'all spent a lot of time with this, like, radical black shit. Like, y'all, y'all taught us everything. <laughs> we know all the names. Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time on this. I was like, but you never thought you should tell us the girl stories? Like, ex- like, yeah. and he was like, oh, yeah, I get what. I was so pissed. I was so mad that they never felt like they needed to give us mm-hmm. the black women's stories, too. And so I think that's part of it for me is like, that specificity matters a lot. Yeah, we get left out of the the conversation a lot. Like our contributions tend to get glazed over. And yeah, it's been, it's kind of frustrating when that happens all the time because you're like, how much do I not know about my own history? I was in Pittsburgh recently because New York Times did this um, month-long series about like sending different writers to different stops on the Underground Railroads. Like I went to Pittsburgh and there was just like all this stuff that I didn't know because it just wasn't taught in schools. It was just like, yeah, Pittsburgh, like a lot of like runaways like passed through Pittsburgh and like that's all I knew. And then I went and like saw these different like houses and like I was just like, oh my God, I know like American history literally is just white history. Mm-hmm. So your parents, um, interracial couple in the 70s, they were both educators. Mm-hmm. Is that what inspired you to be an educator too? And what was it like growing up with such like really smart and active, like socially active parents. All right. So let's be clear. They were not like a couple. Like they was round, both of them, Mm -hmm. and they were both in my life. But the idea of them as a couple, I was like, they were a couple? Like You saw me kind of look at you like, what? And I was like, if I'm not saying things (laughs) Yeah, you saw me. Because I was was like imagining my parents as a couple. I was like, that? Damn. I guess... At some point, sure. Uh-huh. Right. Yep. We were a family. Yes. Of complicated sort. Mm-hmm. Yes. There you go. So, but we were a big, crazy, quirky family. Um, my father is a very intense race man. Mm-hmm. He grew up Jim Crow South, um, was college roommates with Stokely Carmichael. You know, he and his twin brother um, were like you know, like the first to go to college in their families. Both of them became college professors. My dad was like the first dean of Afro-American affairs, you know, at the University of Virginia. Like, you know, I still run into people who were his student and they're like, you know, oh, Dean Harris, yo, you're Dean (laughs) Harris's daughter. You know, like, like that's who my dad was. He would give us birthday, I'm the youngest of five, and he'd give you birthday cards, $1 for every year. Right. So mm-hmm. like if you were six, you get six dollars. Mm-hmm. Right. Forty. Forty dollars. Yeah. <laughs> like straight up. Like, you know how much money you get right now. You know yeah. exactly how many dollars you will be getting. Right. Um, and uh, and then always sign the card the same way. The struggle continues. Daddy. Oh, I love that. Yeah, well, but when you're five, you're like, what the hell? Yeah. That means nothing to you. The str- yeah. The struggle continues. <laughs> Okay, so so that's like that. So that's who my daddy is. Mm-hmm. My mother is a white woman who grew up in the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. in a Latter Day Saints family. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, th- see now your face is doing yeah. it right. <laughs> You're like oh, white white right? Like so, her people. So how did they meet? Yeah, okay, right. So 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm coming. I'm coming. So, like, her people pushed hand carts across the American West. Like, they came from England following Brigham Young, right? Mm-hmm. But she did. She went to Brigham Young University and graduated and wrote, you know, stories about Mormon womanhood. But then she left the church. And she was in graduate school when she met my dad. And she was his TA in a stats class. That's cute. It, well, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then, and then those two people moved yeah. to Virginia in the 70s. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, right. I also was not raised to be interracial. I was black. Really? Okay, let's talk about that. Because my niece is, she's interracial. She's half white, half black. And I think we, we, we're like, yeah, you're both. But so was this a choice you made or a choice your parents made? Or a it combination. was the 70s. <laughs> it was a choice America made. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, how would you look being like, what? you interracial? No, baby. Yeah. Because it was 1975, and we lived, like, immediately post-loving v. Virginia mm-hmm. in Virginia with the white Mormon mama and the black daddy from, you know, Stokely Carmichael. Talking about struggle continues. Yeah. <laughs> and, my, and my mother was a sociologist who wrote books like, how to have intercourse without getting fucked about STDs. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And so my, so while my daddy was like, struggle continues, here's $6. My mama was like, here's a mirror. You should always know your own pussy better than anyone else. That is so cool. Yes, that was my household. But so the 70s decided that you were black and not interracial. So like how did... Does your mom ever have any sort of feelings about She's you? She's white! I know, but She's still, white! I know! What the <laughs> fuck does she need to have a feeling about? The motherfucker is white in America. She's fine. I know, but do you... She's I wonder, white in America. She white. <laughs> so, so I think it's different if we're talking yeah. about two... Um, so inter, I, so I, and, I, and again, I'll have a very different perspective if you're talking about like um, um, Southeast Asian and Latino. So if mm-hmm. if if your if your parents are both from marginal racial minority categories, mm-hmm. then I think it's, it's a, those are different kinds of choices. But if one of the parents is white, yeah, nah, yeah, they gonna get who don't get whiteness, yeah. Well, you got to teach them whiteness because then they might miss it. No, I know, but I was wondering maybe she like because you chose to identify as black. I it, I didn't know if she like maybe felt like oh, she wanted you to also identify both sides i don't know i'm just asking because you might grow up in america and miss whiteness you might (laughs) accidentally miss white history month that's true (laughs) since my point is like you never you never need to reinforce whiteness yeah because whiteness is so powerfully reinforced Mm -hmm. you never need to reinforce it so don't do that to your kids that is some that is you having white woman tears on your kids don't do that shit go have do that shit in the corner can we put that on a magnet, white woman tears on your kids? That's amazing. Don't, Don't do, do it. Don't do that to your child. <laughs> so did they, did they inspire you to become an educator or no? Oh, right. That was the question. Yes, that was. The- yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've read a lot of books to escape. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I mean, maybe they did. You know, again, I'm the youngest of five. None of the rest of um, the family are educators in the most um, classic sense. Mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, everybody's a talker. Everybody's a reader. So I will say, yeah, I think I think all of us are educators um, in one way or another. Yeah. And I want to go back because we got to wrap up. But I want to go back to because you, you have a 15-year-old daughter. She's very exciting. 
or not. I don't know. I was kind of a monster I, when I was a teenager. She, so she could be great. She but is, I was she's a monster asshole. great. She's yeah. a great <laughs> asshole monster. She's one. I mean, I, I, she is the fulfillment of that great parental curse. May you have a child like yourself. Mm-hmm. So I have two children. Yes. I have a three-year-old. Yes. And I have a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. They are very different from each other. Right. So my three-year-old is um, real super black. <laughs> You have a militant three-year-old? Oh, yeah. I love that. My three-year-old is so super militant black Mm -hmm. that um, her preschool teachers thought that she was autistic. They thought that she could not speak Mm -hmm. because she never spoke to them because she doesn't talk to white people. (laughs) And where did she learn that? By chance. (laughs) I talk to white people all the time. No. You were the hubby. Who did it? I, we both talk to white people all day long. I, if I didn't talk to white people, I would be mute. I talk to white folks. I don't know why my child don't talk to white people. Yeah. She apparently for a year and a half went to school and didn't so much as say good morning. She was like, <laughs> and they came home and chatted up all the words to her to her black childcare provider to us. But in school, it was just like. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, she would go to swim class and she didn't like the swimming teacher and she just lay back and put her head so the water would come up over her ears and not listen to her. She's a lot. <laughs> so that's a three-year-old. And her sense of self is all together. She, got, she has her whole entire life mm-hmm. and self-concept and blackness together. Yeah. She's good. Yeah. Now, the 15-year-old, so remember, what do you do at 15? You rebel. Mm-hmm. You rebel against your parents. You particularly rebel against the parent you are most like. So how might one rebel against MHP? I would just only listen to like Lady Antebellum and Taylor Swift. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> okay. A final question is, because you have such a light about you, you just radiate such positivity. So what are you hopeful for in this upcoming year for the country, for yourself and for your family? Well, here here's really where I am with the country. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump is is a meaningful problem for the nation, and and the Trump administration is a meaningful problem. But I think we have to be um, very sober about the fact that an end to a Trump administration, which will happen at some point, mm-hmm. four years, eight years, um, is not an end to the sets of problems that the Trump administration represents. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, if we were to go back to the Dylan Roof example, Dylan Roof is going to die in a gas chamber in South Carolina at some point, most likely. When he dies, white supremacy and white supremacist violence will not die with him. And if we were to believe that it would and that our solution to the problem of white supremacy and white supremacist violence is to kill Dylan Roof in a... South Carolina gas chamber, then we, we'd we be pretty deeply confused about what the work is. And so the Trump administration is potentially the greatest teacher that we have about what our country is, mm-hmm. about who we are. I think it was First Lady Obama who said that the presidency is a great revealer. It, it tells you what the character of the person holding the office is. But she may have been a little wrong, just that it's less about the character of the person holding the offices and more about who the country is. Mm -hmm. This presidency will reveal who we are. 
Okay, that's good. That's kind of hopeful. Yeah. Sure. Yes. <laughs> well, Melissa, thank you so much for being here. You're an absolute delight. I could talk to you for like seven years and not get bored. <laughs> oh, no, you get bored eventually. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> you know, Joni Mitch. I got to say, it's kind of a weird experience interviewing a former host because the whole time I'm wondering if they're critiquing my hosting skills. You know what? You are great, Phoebe. Don't worry about it. I got a Sam sound <gasps> waiting for you. Oh, my God. All you got to do is the credits and then we are out of here. Oh, my God. Sam sound. The So Many White Guys team includes Rachel Neal, Jana Salataroff, Jim Poyant, Paula Schumann, Isaac Jones, Matt Boynton, Jeremy Bloom, and Joe Plord. Our theme song was written by a white dude and sung by a bunch of other white dudes. Hey, so do you want to see video of my fab interview with the super talented Melissa Harris-Perry? Then head on over to the WNYC Studios Facebook page right now. And that's exactly what you'll get. And don't forget, you can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dope Queen Thieves. Also, exciting news, guys. If you are in the Massachusetts area, I will be there on April 1st performing in the High Mud Comedy Festival. It's a two-day laugh fest featuring a bunch of people like Aparna Nonchurla, Jordan Carlos, Dave Hill. But I'm performing April 1st that evening. So go to massmocha.org. Get your tickets now before it sells out. It's going to be amazing. Please, I want to see you there. It'll be cute. We'll like eat some popcorn and like have some fun. Okay. Wakey travel with you. Yeah, I don't want to change anything. I just want to hang out and be like, you guys are fucking stupid. We have to find a period of time that embraces both blacks and Jews simultaneously. Okay, uh, 2004. <laughs> <laughs> that was our year. two was at the Grammys. Christina Aguilera. It was a safe space for everyone. You could see me wearing some flares. Oh my gosh. I wore so many flares and like Steve Madden cowboy boots. Whoa. And I used to wear them all the time. I think I was like really hot. Giddy up. <laughs>